Good morning, and welcome to the Peterson Institute for International Economics. I'm Adam Posen, the Institute's president, and it's my pleasure and privilege to welcome back Chair Jay Powell, the Honorable Jerome Powell, Chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Many of you know, obviously, of Jay, of his service. I just want to remind people that he previously served as an Assistant Secretary and Undersecretary of Treasury under President George H.W. Bush, working on financial institutions, the Treasury debt market. And between that and his joining the Board of Governors in 2012, um, he was a visiting scholar at the Bipartisan <clears throat> Policy Center, working on federal and state fiscal issues. So at a time when fiscal policy is as much or more in the forefront than monetary policy and their interaction is critical, it's very hard to imagine we could have anyone better than Jay Powell, <clears throat> which he's now in. Thank you for coming back to the Peterson Institute, Chairman Powell. Thanks very much, Adam. It's, it's great to be back. <clears throat> I have some uh, brief remarks and then I'll look forward to our discussion. Uh, the coronavirus has left a devastating human and economic toll in its wake as it has spread around the globe. This is a worldwide public health crisis and healthcare workers have been the first responders, showing courage and determination and earning our lasting gratitude. So have the legions of other essential workers who put themselves at risk every day on our behalf. As a nation, we have temporarily withdrawn from many kinds of economic and social activity to help slow the spread of the virus. Some sectors of the economy have been effectively closed since mid-March. People have put their lives and livelihoods on hold, making enormous sacrifices to protect not just their own health and that of their loved ones, but also their neighbors and the broader community. While we're all affected, the burden has fallen most heavily on those least able to bear it. The scope and speed of this downturn are without modern precedent, significantly worse than any recession since World War II. We are seeing a severe decline in economic activity and, in, and employment, and already the job gains of the last decade have been erased. Since the pandemic arrived in force just two months ago, more than 20 million people have lost their jobs. A Fed survey being released tomorrow reflects findings similar to many others. Among people who were working in February, almost 40% of those in households making less than $40,000 a year had lost a job in March. This reversal of economic fortune has caused a level of pain that is hard to capture in words as lives are upended amid great uncertainty about the future. This downturn is different from those that came before it. <clears throat> Earlier in the post-World War II period, recessions were sometimes linked to a cycle of high inflation followed by Fed tightening. The lower inflation levels of recent decades have brought a series of long expansions, often accompanied by the buildup of imbalances over time. Asset prices that reached unsupportable levels, for instance, or important sectors of the economy, such as housing, that boomed unsustainably. The current downturn is unique in that it is attributable to the virus and the steps taken to limit its fallout. This time, high inflation was not a problem. There was no economy-threatening bubble to pop and no unsustainable boom to bust. The virus is the cause, not the usual suspects. Something worth keeping in mind as we respond. Today, I will briefly discuss <clears throat> the measures taken so far to offset the economic effects of the virus and the path ahead. <clears throat> 
Governments around the world have responded <clears throat> quickly with measures to support workers who have lost income and businesses that have either closed or seen a sharp drop in activity. The response here in the United States has been particularly swift and forceful. To date, <clears throat> Congress has provided roughly $2.9 trillion in support for households, businesses, healthcare providers, and state and local governments, about 14% of GDP. While the coronavirus economic shock appears to be the largest on record, the fiscal response has also been the fastest and largest response for any post-war downturn. <clears throat> Pardon me. At the Fed, we've also acted with unprecedented speed and force. After rapidly cutting the federal funds rate close to zero, we took a wide array of additional measures to facilitate the flow of credit in the economy, which can be grouped into four areas. First, outright purchases of treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities to restore functionality in these critical markets. Second, <clears throat> liquidity and funding measures, including discount window measures, expanded swap lines with foreign central banks, and several facilities with treasury backing to support smooth functioning in money markets. Third, with additional backing from the treasury, <clears throat> facilities to more direct, directly support the flow of credit to households, businesses, and state and local governments. And fourth, temporary regulatory adjustments to encourage and allow banks to expand their balance sheets to support their household and business customers. The Fed takes actions such as these only in extraordinary circumstances like those we face today. For example, our authority to extend credit directly to private non-financial businesses and state and local governments exists only in unusual and exigent circumstances and with the consent of the Secretary of the Treasury. When this crisis is behind us, we will put these emergency tools away. While the economic response has been both timely and appropriately large, it may not be the final chapter, given that the path ahead is both highly uncertain and subject to significant downside risks. Economic forecasts are uncertain in the best of times, and today the virus raises a new set of questions. How quickly and sustainably will it be brought under control? Can new outbreaks be avoided as social distancing measures lapse? How long will it take for confidence to return and normal spending to resume? And what will be the scope and timing of new therapies, testing, or a vaccine? The answers to these questions will go a long way towards setting the timing and pace of the economic recovery. Since the answers are currently unknowable, policies will need to be ready to address a range of possible outcomes. The overall policy response to date has provided a measure of relief and stability and will provide some support to the recovery when it comes. But the coronavirus crisis raises longer term concerns as well. <clears throat> the record shows that deeper and longer recessions can leave behind lasting damage to the productive capacity of the economy. Avoidable household and business insolvencies can weigh on growth for years to come. Long stretches of unemployment can damage or end workers' careers as their skills lose value and professional networks dry up and leave families in greater debt. The loss of thousands of small and medium-sized businesses across the country would destroy the life's work and family legacy of many businesses and community leaders and limit the strength of the recovery when it comes. These businesses are a principal source of job creation, something we will need sorely as people seek to return to work. 
A prolonged recession and weak recovery could also discourage business investment and expansion, further limiting the resurgence of jobs as well as the growth of the capital stock and the pace of technological advancement. The result could be an extended period of low productivity growth and stagnant incomes. We ought to do what we can to avoid these outcomes, and that may require additional policy measures. At the Fed, we will continue to use our tools to their fullest until the crisis has passed and the economic recovery is well underway. Recall, though, that the Fed has lending powers, not spending powers. A loan from a Fed facility can provide a bridge across temporary interruptions to liquidity, and those loans will help many borrowers get through the current crisis. But the recovery may take some time to gather momentum, and the passage of time can turn liquidity problems into solvency problems. Additional fiscal support could be costly, but worth it if it helps avoid long-term damage and leaves us with a stronger recovery. This trade-off is one for our elected representatives who wield powers of taxation and spending. Thank you again, and I look forward to our discussion. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I'd like to start where you started, uh, Jay. You have, for a long time, and particularly since becoming chair, spoken about the distributional aspects of running the economy hot, of the importance of full employment. And until the pandemic hit, we were getting very close to something that looked genuinely like full employment with some growth and convergence in incomes for excluded groups and growth incomes for those groups. As you pointed out, it's those least able financially to bear this burden who are being hit right now. So going forward, do you see us as possible to get back to the kind of full employment we had? You've mentioned scarring of workers. How much does quick action now benefit us in terms of longer term unemployment rate? And also, in the past, sometimes when people talk about hysteresis, you didn't use that technical term, but the long-term damage from recessions to workers and businesses. Um, it's been a two-edged sword. People say we can't come up, can't get the NARU down, we can't get the unemployment down because there's been scarring. Whereas what the Fed, I think, demonstrated in recent years is you should experiment to see how low you can go with unemployment. So when we get through this crisis, how do you see the Fed's role in terms of its mandate on unemployment? Um, first, let me say um, it, was, uh, it was a great period to watch unemployment decline and continue declining and continue declining and not see either wage or price inflation move up. And I think we've learned something very fundamental uh, about our ability to associate unemployment, levels of unemployment with inflation or indeed other imbalances. And I think that's a lesson we'll be, we'll be carrying forward. It's also been, frankly, uh, it was, we were, over the course of the last year or so with our Fed Listens events, we made a series of, uh, of 14 different events and engaged with different communities all across America. Uh, including in particular low and moderate income communities. And what we heard was that this was the best labor market in 50 years or in, in people's in lifetimes. And uh, it was, th their strong advice was, please just keep this going. You know, we're, we're, we're feeling opportunity we haven't felt. They didn't feel the first seven or eight years of the expansion, but they began to feel that in years, you know, nine, 10 and 11. 
So it was a great feeling. And I think two months ago, we were looking ahead at more of that and thinking further healing and, and further addressing of these issues. So it's particularly painful to see uh, all of that uh, put aside, at least temporarily. And, and as I mentioned, the numbers show clearly that it's, it's more recent hires and lower paid uh, people who are bearing the brunt of this, although people are suffering all across the income spectrum. Um, so in terms, of, in terms of getting back, uh, I would say that uh, we, I would say that probably uh, over the course of the next month or so, unemployment will peak. And then as we return to more normal levels of, of economic activity, it's a reasonable expectation that unemployment will start to decline again. And it may decline sharply, but it's also likely to remain well above the levels that we saw earlier this year and all through uh, 2019 and 18, uh, which were 50-year lows in unemployment. So uh, it'll take some time to get back to where we were. Uh, I have every reason to think we can get back there. The economy should substantially recover uh, once the virus is under control. Um, so ending with your final question, though, I, I think it's, it is a major takeaway for the, for, for the way I look and the way we, we, we're looking at the economy now at the Fed um, to place probably less weight on real-time estimates of the natural rate of unemployment, because we see that uh, we were able to move down to 3.5% and be there without really any sign of a reaction from inflation or from other imbalances uh, in, in the economy. So um, it's uh, a, a place we, we can get back to, we will get back to, it'll take some time. The main thing to do is to get on that road to recovery and then just stay on it for, for a, a long period of time. And I think that's, uh, that's what I expect will happen. Terrific. And I want to praise you for long before this crisis, talking about not having too much faith in the stars and being more pragmatic on the data. Um, turning to the second main point from your remarks, you, in my view, rightly emphasize the idea that more stimulus, but not just stimulus, more support for the supply side of the economy is needed and that it will probably have to be fiscal policy, not monetary policy that does that. In short, that if we cut off fiscal stimulus too small, too soon, it's not just a demand issue, it's a supply side issue. That said, there are concerns some people raise about the fiscal policy in the future, even though all reasonable fiscal hawks know we should be spending right now. So the question is, what does fiscal responsibility look like a year or two down the road or three, especially if we will still have 10%, 8% unemployment, long-term unemployment? How should we, obviously this is for elected officials to think about, but what kinds of principles would you want them to be thinking about in terms of the recovery of the economy? And what role can the Fed play? When I was at Bank of England, I got into a public tiff with the governor then, Mervyn King. Governor King thought it was the role of the bank and the governor to lecture the parliament about fiscal responsibility, I didn't. What role do you think the Fed has to play in disciplining fiscal policy going forward? We, we don't uh, play a formal role in fiscal policy, and it, meaning that uh, we wouldn't take a position, I wouldn't take a position supporting a particular bill. Uh, I might ask question, answer questions that I get privately from members about things, but 
it's not our role to uh, supervise Congress. It's actually the other way around. Congress, we're, we're a creature of uh, congressional action and they have oversight over us. But like other Fed chairs through time, I, I have said uh, things that are fairly high level about getting back on a sustainable fiscal path over time. And I do think that's important and, and appropriate just because it's important for the long run good of the economy, which is, which is part, of our, part of our bailiwick. As I mentioned, you know, it's worth remembering, Congress is, has really moved quickly and in real, with real force here, and appropriately so. Uh, this is the biggest shock our economy has felt in modern times, and this is the biggest fiscal response. It is far larger than any fiscal response, and it came very, very quickly. So that, that's a good thing. The issue is that there's a lot of uncertainty ahead. Um, it may take even just a few more months than we would like. For the economy to recover. Um, we, my colleagues and I have um, been speaking to a wide range of, uh, of leaders of not-for-profit, for-profit businesses all across the U.S. economy, all different kinds of businesses. And what comes through is there, there is a sense that, uh, a growing sense, I think, that the, the recovery may come more slowly than we would like, but it will come. And that may mean that it's necessary to, for us to do more, and you know the, the trade-off is this, as I, as I mentioned in my remarks, we know that long periods of unemployment uh, leave a shadow over the labor force and over our economy and over people's lives on mass. We also know that waves of bankruptcies can, can weigh on economic activity for years. If you think about the small and medium-sized businesses that are really the heart of our economy and the heart of job creation, those are the those are typically, you know, often anyway, the the product of generations worth of work to create. And if they avoidably become insolvent just because economic activity doesn't recover fast enough, I think we would lose more than just that business. I think we lose uh, we lose uh, something fundamental, and uh, it will be it won't be able to be replaced, um, you know, quickly. In terms of fiscal, uh, you know. Fiscal discipline. I absolutely believe that we we must, and indeed we we will eventually have to return to a sustainable fiscal path, and that just means that you've got to get the economy growing faster than the debt. That and then, and then over and have that happen for a long period of time, and gradually uh, reduce the ratio of the debt to our to the, to the size of the economy. That's how you do it successfully, and many countries have done it successfully over a period of time like that. And I, I do think the time to do that is during good times. Uh, you know, when, when the economy is strong and, and unemployment is low, that's the time to be addressing those concerns. I think now when we are facing, you know, the biggest shock that the economy has had in modern times is for me, not the time to prioritize considerations like that. I do think that we can come back to them fairly quickly, which is to say, you know, a few years down the road when, when the economy is, is well and truly recovered, or at least mostly recovering. Um, so. Thank you for that. Uh, turning to some operational monetary policy issues, of course, all kinds of market people and reporters would love to ask you about negative rates. Mm -hmm. I would like, before getting what I'm sure will be your answer on that, um, <laughs> I, I would like to ask a little more deeply about the thinking behind negative rates in the U.S. current context. So one way of looking at it is, of course, that QE and rate cuts are essentially substitutes. And so that if you can do more QE 
for all these various credit facilities and interventions, the four buckets that you listed, you could always scale that up and not bother with negative rates, which may have negative political effects as well as economic effects. A flip side is that on the other side, there are people who argue negative rates have a particular use in terms of currency valuation, but also as my colleagues Olivier Jean and Joseph Gagnon have argued, it might enable more QE because it gives you more space. Just broadly speaking, how do you feel about the arguments for and against negative rates in the US at this point? So Adam, let me start by saying that um, the committee's view on uh, on negative rates really has has not changed. Uh, this is not something that we're that we're looking at. We chose not to implement negative rates uh, during the global financial crisis and the recovery, and instead we relied, as you pointed out, on board guidance and asset purchases. Asset purchases when we're when we were at the near the zero bound, and we've said that we intend to continue relying on those tools, which uh, are tried and and uh, they are now a part of our toolkit. Um, in fact, we revisited this at last October's, just way back in October, uh, revisited this question and uh, the minutes said that all uh, FOMC participants, and that's not a sentence you get to say very often, all <laughs> FOMC participants currently did not, uh, that judge that, that negative rates currently did not appear to be uh, an attractive monetary policy tool in the United States. So I, I, I would say a couple of reasons behind that. One is we do feel that our tools work. The, the tools that we have used, forward guidance and asset purchases work. We're now doing uh, uh, these 13-3 uh, facilities. We think they work too. So we think we have a good toolkit and it works and, and we have evidence that it works. And I think uh, that's what, what we'll, we'll, be, we'll be using. Um, also, the evidence on the, the effectiveness of negative rates is, is very mixed. It's very mixed. There's no, uh, I, there are research that says that they've been effective. Uh, there are plenty of doubters. Uh, and the issue really is the concern over, over uh, interrupting the intermediation process and uh, you know, reducing bank profitability, thereby reducing uh, the availability of credit in the economy. So it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's, an, it's an unsettled area, I would call. Um, call it. Uh, I know that there are there are fans of the policy, but uh, for now, it's not something that we're not something that we're considering. We think we have a good toolkit, and that's the one we'll be using. Delighted to hear you say that. Um, let me turn now to another question about your toolkit. So, some of the facilities, as you said, inherently, what the Federal Reserve does is provide people with liquidity, with loans, with temporary bridges. Um, in the past financial crisis in 2008, 2009, one issue was money was put out through QE, through cuts in rates and other measures, but it didn't get invested in the real economy because, you know, the old Keynesian notion of pushing on the string because ex there was great uncertainty, expectations were poor, and so on. What makes you think that some of the facilities that are being made available now will be taken up in a way that they, and then used in the real economy in a way that they weren't, say, in 2008 to 2010? I mean, will the Main Street lending work if you're running a small restaurant, a small nail salon, and, and a small tourist guiding business? I mean, God willing, I know you want to help these people, and we would all like to help these people, but those sectors may shrink. In, in the real world. So why do we think they're going to take these loans? Well, 
Um, as, so as I mentioned in my, in my remarks, um, we can address liquidity problems. And that is in fact, the problem that many companies find themselves facing. Um, companies that are, that are really very directly affected by, uh, by the coronavirus uh, uh, are in a special place, the, you know, the airline, hotels, uh, some restaurants and things like that. And really, um, uh, we will need to see the economy recover fairly quickly um, for them to benefit from this. But we're, we're, we're in a position where we will lend to companies uh, based on their their earnings from 2019, as we've said, and uh, and if they qualify, we will lend to them up to that limit. So we're willing to take that risk. Um, so I, I actually, as I mentioned in my remarks, I, I think we'll be in a position to help many, many, many companies, and I certainly hope that's the case with these facilities. We we frankly have helped uh, already through the announcement effect, where we've uh, where markets have really loosened up and started to function much better than they were just a couple of months ago at, at the peak of the, uh, you know, the early part of the crisis where markets were, were not functioning well. So we see that and that's enabled many companies to funk, to, to finance themselves now. And that, that's a good thing. And it may mean that we actually don't, we are, actually aren't needed. I think in main street though, those are companies that, that generally that don't have market access and, um, and they will need these loans. We will want to provide them. We are, let me just say about main street, this, this is a, for those who don't follow this maybe as closely, this is for companies that have um, fewer than five, less than $5 billion in revenue, fewer than 15,000 employees. Uh, it's probably going to be for companies that, that don't have access to the capital markets or the syndicated loan market. So these are the great small and medium sized companies. And it's an incredibly diverse group of companies, very diverse industries and credit needs. And we're trying to create products with Main Street that address as broad a swath of those needs as we possibly can. It's also operationally uh, very complex. P people have credit agreements. They've got existing uh, uh, credit ex uh, agreements. So we have to work, work through all of that. And we're in the process of doing that. I think Main Street will be able to go live in a few weeks. Um, so I, I am hopeful that we can meet the demand that is out there. We are committed to continuing to innovate and adapt as we've shown ourselves willing to do with these facilities. This is completely unique in our history. Uh, and so we're learning as we go. And it, it, you know, as we go, we'll, we'll continue to be willing to adapt. But you, you do, I didn't make this point in my remarks. We can make loans to solvent borrowers and uh, to solvent borrowers who don't have access to other private sources of capital. That's just what the law requires of us under 13.3 to make, to make a loan. And, um, as I mentioned, the passage of time is really all it takes to turn a, sol a liquidity problem into a solvency problem. So we'll be, we'll be um, a big help for companies for a while, but over a longer period of time, uh, it, it may be that, uh, that more fiscal help is needed. Now, again, I don't, uh, I don't prescribe how, or, but I, I just say that um, it could be costly, but the benefits of it would also be potentially substantial. Thank you. Another thing where, another area where you and your colleagues on the FOMC were ahead of the curve before the pandemic was you were putting new emphasis on the effect of events abroad on the US economy, uh, not just the narrow trade role. Uh, Maury Obsfeld, you'll recall, did a great paper on that for the June Fed Listens Conference last year. I was wondering if you could take us through how you see what's happening in the rest of the world affecting the U.S. recovery right now 
and how you see the flight into the dollar, which obviously was enabled in huge ways by the swap lines that the Fed and its partner central banks provided, how that benefits the US economy as well as the world. We are, of course, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, so we think it does matter, but what matters is what you think matters. Fair enough. Um, well, the global economy and even more so the global financial markets are tightly integrated at this point uh, in time. Uh, over the years, that's become more and more the case. So it is very much in our interest for the global economy to be strong. Uh, we need people to buy our exports. Uh, and uh, just in general, we, uh, we benefit from a stronger global economy. Um, uh, in terms of the, um, the swap line, so um, we are the world's reserve currency. And uh, all around the world, people fund economic activities from time to time in dollars. They buy U.S. dollar-denominated uh, credit assets, for example, U U.S. mortgage loans and things like that wind up being bought by, by foreign banks who want to fund those activities in dollars. Mm -hmm. So there are these dollar funding markets around the world, and they're actually uh, fairly important to the U.S. financial markets and the U.S. economy. They are effectively providing corp credit to U.S. households and businesses through these dollar funding markets. And you're right, as, um, as the reality of the pandemic uh, dawned in uh, a couple of months ago, there was a, understandably in financial markets, a flight to safety. And that meant short maturity. It meant fixed income. It meant U.S. dollar sovereign credit at the short end. And that left, um, you know, remarkable, uh, unprecedented levels of illiquidity in a number of markets. And we saw it in the uh, dollar, dollar swap markets. We saw a swap basis, uh, widening and uh, threatening, you know, those dollar funding markets and also played it playing a role in what was happening in the U.S. Treasury market, which was becoming highly illiquid and, and uh, uh, more dysfunctional than, than we'd seen it. So this, what the swap lines do is they we provide uh, dollars, we swap dollars for a local currency with another central bank and that central bank faces off against its banks and provides dollar funding to them. So dollar funding around the world and it had a, had a very constructive effect on <clears throat> calming down those markets and uh, you know reducing the the uh, safety premium for owning U.S. dollars, so it's it's played a role in in supporting uh, return to more normal conditions in global financial markets. More broadly, I think what we've been able to do is to help markets return to more normal functioning, which has the effect of buying time, buying time for healthcare professionals, buying time for governments to respond at a time when the financial markets are working, the financial system is working, and we, we don't have to face uh, dysfunctional markets and the loss of credit availability, for example, to companies and, and households. So those measures, um, both the swap lines and the uh, facilities that we've done, uh, have really, I think, been somewhat effective at, at achieving that. Thank you so much, Jay. We're out of time, and you obviously have a world to continue to save. I just want to express my admiration for what you, the FOMC members, and the whole team at the Federal Reserve are doing. You're providing competence, calm, concern for the right issues, and nonpartisan fact-based work at a time when we need it. Thank you.